Welcome back to the New Books in Hindu Studies podcast, um, an affiliate podcast channel of New Books Network. Uh, today, I'm speaking with uh, Dr. David Haberman, who is a professor of religious studies at Indiana University. Uh, hello, David, and welcome to the program. Yeah, good morning, Raj, um, and thank you for having me on your show. Oh, it's uh, my pleasure. Uh, we are diving in today to a brand new 2020 OUP publication, Loving Stones, Making the Impossible Possible in the Worship of Mount Govardhan. So um, how did you get, uh, how did this project come about? How did you end up studying a mountain? Well, in many ways, I think my book projects are all tied together, although maybe I'm the only one who can see that. And I, um, my first book, Acting as a Way of Salvation, was really a textual study. So I consider myself to be a Sanskrit textualist, I suppose, in my early graduate school days. And I was uh, studying a text called the Bhaktirasamta Sindhu, really for its um, relevancy and my interest in theater and reality construction. And Um, One of my beloved professors at the University of Chicago, where I did my graduate work, Edward Dimock, said to me that I had a choice when I received a Fulbright of either going to Kolkata and studying with scholars in the universities there, or going to Brindavan, where the text had um, been written. And um, I I had a, a slated version to big cities at that time. And my only experience with Brindavan came through those 18th century Conger paintings that make Brindavan look like this glorious pastoral um, world. And I thought, wow, let me, I can actually go there and do my work. So I ended up going to Brindavan and doing that project, focusing on that text and finding interesting conversation partners uh, in the Bridge region. Uh, that Vrindavan was located within. But I think what was most uh, educational and astounding in many ways for me was the discovering of what I would now call the lived religious culture of the Brudge area. And Brudge is the area that surrounds uh, the, the town of Vrindavan and is located in... Um, an area that is identified with a grand renaissance of the Krishna cultural traditions back in the 16th century. And I had friends who would begin taking me on adventures outside of Vrindavan into the forest surrounding Vrindavan. And there I would, I would encounter uh, first just a, a beautiful landscape, but also the understanding that the whole Brudge region was um, not just a sacred space, but was a, a storied space. That is, that there was a story associated with many of the locations around the area uh, that Brindavan was located in, which led me to my next project, which oh, I discovered that there was a pilgrimage that took about a month where people would go and walk through that terrain. And 
Um, that culminated in my book, Journey Through the Twelve Forests. But that got me out of text and into more the the lived tradition and the encounter with embodied forms of divinity, not only in the temples and home shrines, etc., that are uh, in the Brudge area, but also the understanding that um, various natural entities themselves were regarded as embodied forms of divinity. And specifically, the three biggies in Brudge are the Yomuna River, the Brindavan Forest, and the mountain Govardhan. And so that after uh, the, the pilgrimage project, which really introduced me to the notion of a sacred landscape, that a landscape itself can be divine, I became interested in human interaction with um, natural embodied forms of divinity. Um, and that began a study of the Yamuna River, which culminated in my book, um, River of Love in an Age of Pollution. That was followed by People Trees, which is an investigation of the concept of personhood in trees. And then, I suppose, in some sense, Loving Stones then is the uh, final piece of that puzzle, <laughs> focusing on the three big uh, features of the natural world. And my friend and colleague Jack Holly said, well, why don't you write that third book? And I had hesitated because in some sense, I, I don't just write books about particular cultural features, but I'm interested in writing a book that introduces me and my readers to just big, juicy issues in religious studies. And when I began to see possibilities in a study of the sacred Mount Govardhan, um, this book then came into my mind, and I was fortunate enough to get good funding to do a study of Mount Govardhan. So I was hoping you'd tell the story of this uh series uh, series of books. Uh, so thank you for sharing the background. Now, in terms of this specific book, um, there it's both about the practices and the data of engaging this mountain uh, in as as an object of veneration, as 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 divine. And then you alluded just now to the big juicy concepts or tensions in, in studying religion or, or worldviews that, that you also talk about in this book. Um, so what would you say that is? The big juicy questions in it? The big juicy questions. <laughs> well, I, I indicate uh, in the introduction of the book that the subtitle, Making the Impossible Possible in the Worship of Mount Govardhan, I use in two different ways. One is um, that the worship itself, uh, which is a very embodied form of worship of an embodied form of divinity, aims at uh, oftentimes, well, it aims at achieving some desired goal. And oftentimes it happens to be a goal that is, uh, seems to be unattainable. So in that sense, um, I'm looking at the worship of Mount Govardhan as a way of making the impossible possible. But I also use the title to indicate the work of um, someone like myself who has spent my life 
um, representing, interpreting, helping students and my readers understand something about another religious culture. So my books are published by American University Presses, and my audience, although it, it has a global readership, is primarily aimed at um, at North American culture, right? I suppose, to make make that specific. And um, I, I became interested in just the, the cultural stretch that something like worshiping the sacred stones from Mount Govardhan represents for many who are deeply embedded in the predominant, not the only, but I would say the predominant religious worldview that is in place in general North American culture. And in my um, book, People Trees, when I often give talks when I'm working on a book project, not so much after I complete a project, because I find that most beneficial for me, most exciting, because I learn from my audience and their questions. And while touring around giving talks about the concept of personhood and close human relationships with trees, I would find, uh, have a common experience. And that was that after the public question and answer period ended, <laughs> because I think people are shy about this, people would inevitably flock to the podium and want to tell me about their special tree, their special relationship with a particular tree. And so that I came to see that in putting together some of the subcultures in North America, Native American cultures, but I would say um, kind of an, an, a revival interest in neo-paganism, that, that the idea that, um, uh, but, but also with these groups of people who have come to me, that the idea that uh, humans can have significant relationships with a tree is by no means there at the center of the dominant culture, but is there on the periphery. But the idea that um, you could have an intimate relationship with a stone seemed to really stretch, maybe even snap, the sense of possibilities for those deeply embedded in that dominant culture. And I, so there's one of the questions I take up, is how to make uh, something that is seemingly as absurd to many people as an intimate interaction with and worship of something like a sacred stone, make that understandable uh, to my my readership. And so that's one of, that's one of the big big juicy questions is um, how how to make something that seems so impossible to understand understandable. But you were going to say? Well, I was saying that's your uh, very clever uh, between a rock and a hard place. Uh, the rock being the actual stones and mountain, and the hard place being um, uh, the the understanding of how this could even be possible right. in North American culture, as you say. Right. They're my they're my uh, hard cell, my hard place. That is. Um, Right. How to how to make that understandable to to my readers? And how do we? Or should I say, how do you? 
Well, I mean, yeah, so uh, uh, maybe not to go too deeply into that, because I hope I lay it out in a fairly complex way. But um, what I promote in the book is what I finally call a playful approach to other cultures. And um, that's appropriate in many ways, because it draws on the culture that I'm studying. Uh, all of the Sanskrit texts that um, that present what is one of the main central stories of the Mount Govardhan religious culture is a story of Krishna lifting Mount Govardhan. And um, that's, a, that's a complex story, and there's much to say about that. But one piece of that is that all of them say that he does it lilaya, the Sanskrit term they use, that is, he does it playfully. So there's something playful, and Krishna, while holding the mountain, is standing between a rock and a hard place. So I use that image to go into the concept of play. And there I get into cultural anthropology, and I use for play as a beginning point the works of Gregory Bateson, where he uses the image of uh, a playful nip of monkeys to talk about play. And I like that because uh, I did my research living at a site at the edge of the mountain um, called Jatipura and lived on top of a 16th century temple uh, where I would encounter many, many monkeys every day as I walked out onto the roof of that temple. And I would see monkeys playfully biting each other, or rather to use Bateson's term, nipping, because what he wants to say about the nip is that it's situated in between a bite, and a bite uh, has an intentionality of control, and it is a violent move that aims perhaps to even kill the one that you are biting. So that represents kind of that controlling effort that aims to eliminate cultural difference. And on the other extremes, monkeys could just stay away from another monkey, be completely aloof and unengaged. And that would represent just an ignoring of other cultures. Uh, and both of these tend to be supported by notions of superiority, cultural superiority. The nip is not remaining aloof. It is an engagement with the other, but it's, it's not a bite that aims at controlling. Basically, play has no purpose other than the enjoyment of the act itself. So play is not so much a form of an act as much as it is a framework. And um, I, I use that through some of the cultural anthropologists that I um, use as conversation partners in thinking about play to articulate an attitude of approaching other cultures. And I would say that the main components of that attitude is one of vulnerability, an openness to uncertainty, um, a, a complete surrender in some sense to any claims of certainty or absolute knowledge, um, a notion of mutual respect, notions of equality, that approaching cultures through that mode, I think, is a, a mode of cultural understanding 
that is being articulated by many in um, post-colonial studies, because the colonial attitude was the bite in so many ways. It was a it was a, a resting in a superiority, and the goal was uh, an, an absolute knowledge. So again, openness, vulnerability, embracing uncertainty, and in that play, then cultural difference remains. It's not obliterated through some claim of absolute knowledge from the outside, um, but rather it's, it's the element that keeps the play in motion. And yeah, so I, I think, it, but it's that attitude of that openness, vulnerability, and mutual respect, equality. So when you're looking at this um, idea that uh, Krishna uh, lifted the mountain uh, through means of play, right? like playfully. Um, are you taking that as play in the literal sense that we understand it perhaps cross-culturally? Or are there, um, or, or are you also implicating Mila in a theological sense? Well, I would say both. And, and I try to bring them together because um, Play, I, I would say that the concept of play is very much tied to the concept of karma yoga in the Bhagavad Gita, which is purposeless action. Um, it, it is action where the very, the, the fruit, the fall of the action has been surrendered. And therefore, um, although the word lila is not used in the Bhagavad Gita, I think the concept is there. And certainly, uh, has given birth to more robust notions of play within the theological traditions, specifically within the Krishnaite theological traditions. Um, but also, the, there's just such a playful quality in, again, going back to um, Krishna lifting the mountain. And I'd be happy to tell that story at, at length if and I assume readers or, or, or those who are listening to this know that, or would it be useful just to give a brief telling of that story? A uh, story is never told the same twice, so we would love to hear it now. Okay. So one of the main stories that is associated with Mount Gorodhan is told in the Bhagavad Puran, which is a, a text of, of great, great importance in the Braj Vaishnav traditions that I study. And... Uh, the story is told that the Krishna grows up in a uh, kind of a pastoral uh, environment. They are cow herders, and uh, they have a practice in their village of once a year making a grand sacrificial offering to Indra, who is considered to be the god of of, of rain, of storms, and and thinking then that that their lives depended upon Indra. Um, the, this grand sacrifice was made. One day, Krishna approaches his father, Nanda Baba, who is the chief of the village that, uh, that um, he lives in, and says, Father, why are we worshiping uh, Indra with uh, this grand sacrifice? Um, what do the gods really have to do with our life? It's actually an interesting text in the Bhagavad. And uh, he says, our lives really are much more dependent upon Mount Govardhan, this mountain that we live by, because it supplies 
water for our cattle. It supplies grass for our cattle. It supplies shade. It goes on listing the great value of this natural entity known as Mount Govardhan. And his father is convinced, uh, along with the other elders of the village, so they shift the grand food offering that has been collected from offering it to Indra now to offering it to the mountain. And so one form already of Krishna in this story is Krishna as the cowherd boy who is in conversation with his father. Um, But uh, as they do that, Indra is extremely upset and decides to uh, do great violence to the residents of, of this Braj area by unleashing a horrific storm on them that lasts for seven days and seven nights. And it was like huge boulders of hail and columns of rain, destructive. And everyone is afraid and they go to Krishna and he responds by uh, taking Mount Govardhan and holding it on the little finger of his left hand high in the air like a giant umbrella. And all the um, residents and their cows go underneath that mountain for protection. And eventually Indra understands who he's dealing with, right? the, the, the supreme divinity where, who has much, much more power and, um, and submits to Krishna in this, surrenders to him and surrenders the great pride that he has to him. So um, then the great, uh, during the celebration of the food offering to the mountain itself, an interesting thing happens in the text. And uh, the mountain speaks and uh, during this and says, Shailawasmi, that in the voice of Krishna, it says, I am the mountain. And in addition to that, the text is clear in, uh, it says that, um, that namo chakrayatmanatmane, that, that Krishna is worshiping himself by means of himself. That is, that there's a dual form here, uh, of Krishna. He is the mountain and he is the one worshiping the mountain. He is the one holding the mountain and he is the mountain that is being held. And the concept of play is connected to the concept of non-dualism. And that these are two components that are the same, that is, it's Krishna, and yet are different. And that's the complex non-duality of many of the Vrajvaishnam traditions, which uh, kind of, which is called Achinta Beda Bed, the um, the inconceivable simultaneity of difference and non-difference within one of the major um, religious traditions of this area, or Shuddhvaita Vedanta uh, in another, which, and both of them center on this notion that, that Krishna is the abode of the simultaneity, the simultaneity of polar opposites. And there's the notion of play that someone like Gregory Bateson is working on, is that there's a great difference, and yet it's the interaction 
in, in the case of the story, the loving interaction of the worship. Um, because in other, another story, which uh, we'll take it that, another story, um, that, uh, that the mountain is said to come out of the very heart of Krishna in his cowherd form. And uh, later, there is an important form of Krishna that is worshipped in this area and was at one time located on, in a temple on top of the mountain that comes out of the heart of the mountain. So it's this mutual circularity, this interplay of a difference that is simultaneously non-different is, that is at the very core of the theological tradition that I study. But I, it also ties into, in interesting ways, what um, cultural scholars are, are saying about play. And I suppose what I'm trying to draw out, and maybe in a way no one else has, and that is that play is being situated between two cultures that are seemingly radically different. And the place of the, uh, the, the anthropologist is is a, a is, is a place that some anthropologists call straddling who has a foot in both worlds and yet in neither worlds but can negotiate them and the process of understanding comes about by holding two two differences simultaneously and that's that's impossible but that's the impossibility of play that I think is the key to really understanding cultural difference um, that we find represented in something like the intimate, worshipful interaction with a stone. So what does that worship look like? How are folks, uh, practically speaking, what do they do? How do, how do they worship yeah. the mountain? And then... An ancillary question that's related to what we're just talking about is, is it your sense that their worship is informed by a cognizant of this theology, this philosophy, these, these, these philosophical insights? Um, well, let me start with the latter part of that. And I would say yes. <laughs> um, so that one of my major, major texts for this book is my hundreds of conversations I had with everyday worshipers of the mountain that I would encounter during the most of two years that I lived uh, out at the sacred mountain. Um, and although I wouldn't have expected them, I do draw on texts like the Upanishads and the Gita and Gurga Sanhita. I wouldn't necessarily expect them to know those texts, although there is more knowledge of those texts than I might have expected. But I think that somehow these are ideas that they have imbibed just growing up in, in the culture that is associated with the sacred mountain. And in, in teaching my students about Hinduism, say generally, uh, I do use texts such as the Upanishads and I talk, talk about the philosophical ideas that are embedded in texts such as the Upanishads or in the case I just mentioned, Bhagavad Puran, as texts that people might not directly read, uh, but they function like the grammar of the religion. And 
when we first encounter the concept of grammar, we do that through or the language of our mother tongue. And we don't learn our mother tongue through grammar. We just know it. And by the time we even have to study what many of us think in early schooling is kind of boring stuff, grammar, we've already, we've already internalized the grammar of the language. But anyone who has studied another language that is very different from their mother tongue knows that you have to study the grammar. The grammar is the way that you learn that language. And so I think part of the work in teaching is to introduce students to the grammar of something like Hinduism, or in maybe this more specific case, I try to introduce my readers to the grammar of the religious culture of Braj Vaishnavism that the worship of Mount Govardhan goes out of, and as, as a way. So I guess I'm not claiming that the way I'm speaking about it is the way necessarily that those I had conversations with, in fact, not at all the case. But I think that there's a connection between the two through what I'm calling this grammar that I'm trying to bring out much more. So to answer your first question, how do people worship the mountain? Um, there's first, there's a way they do it generally, and it comes through two practices. One is called Purakrama, and Purakrama is uh, refers to this, uh, the circumambulation of the sacred mountain. And the sacred mountain has a circumambulatory pathway around it that is about 14 miles in length. And so just by walking around that, one is engaging the embodied form of divinity that is the mountain with one's own body and one's own senses. One is seeing the mountain. Uh, one is hearing various things that are going on around the mountain. One is um, touching the dust of, of the mountain. So there, there's a physical interaction with the mountain. And most people do it by just circumambulating the mountain. It's always done clockwise uh, and uh, ideally barefoot. And what people I spoke with said, then you're, you're, it's a much more intimate contact. It's a much more respectful way to, of circumambulating the mountain. So that's one way that people honor the mountain, because Purikrama is a way of honoring a person or uh, some embodied form of divinity by circumambulating it clockwise. The other form is puja, and kind of a generic. And uh, puja is is making offerings to the mountain, food offerings, uh, hymn offerings, uh, incense offerings, uh, bathing the mountain with water or milk. Uh, the mountain loves milk. Um, so all that is done. But that is done usually at a particular location with a particular stone, which then leads me to the most intimate form of interaction with the mountain. And that has to do with the worship of an individual stone from the mountain. Each and every stone, and I wouldn't begin to imagine how many there are of the mountain, are considered to be natural embodied forms, a divinity that are non-different from the mountain itself. So to worship a part of the mountain is the same as worshiping the whole mountain. 
again, a lot of this in the ideology of non-dualism. And the, the worship of an individual stone allows for a much more intimate relationship to be formed between the worshiper and God in this embodied form. Um, and we're, uh, and, and it's that real intimate relationship, sambandh is the Hindi Sanskrit word for that, that is, is the aim of the worship, to have a, have a deep loving connection with God in the form, uh, this embodied form. And we, we as human beings are not wired for deep relationships with the abstract, right? So something like universal human love is a very noble idea, which I think we need much more of in the world today. But we know that our most intimate connection with people comes in the form of a connection with a particular individual or a few individuals. That's the deepest of our within our psychological makeup. And so people then will will have a stone come into their life. And it's said very strongly, you, you are not to just take a stone from the mountain. That would be a, a, a religious offense. But rather that stone has to come to you through the hands of a, of, of a devotee of the mountain or from your guru, or in some cases it might come through the instruction of a dream. But it has to come to you in a special form. And then once that stone comes into your life, it is considered to be an embodied form of divinity with full presence of God. That, that has to be, that awareness is drawn out in the worship, but that, that understanding is a beginning point. So uh, people typically establish a stone in their home in uh, what is called a home shrine. And then we'll engage that stone as, as one would engage a chi- one's child or one's lover or some respected elder. There's a variety of emotions that are used and can be used, and all of them are fine to engage in it. But uh, in brief, it would take the form of, let's say, waking that stone up in the morning with a beautiful hymn. Uh, giving it a nice food offering in the morning, uh, then giving it a bath, dressing it up in an ornate, beautiful outfit for the day. We all like to be dressed well, we feel good at that. Um, and maybe another food offering, uh, song offerings throughout the day, different food offerings, and there, there are more or less detailed practices involved in this until it culminates in the night with uh, some bedtime snack, uh, some a hymn, and there's a, there's a vast tradition of poems, maybe that's a better term, poems that are sung in this context, uh, and the stone is put in a bed for the night to be woken up the next day, and uh, the, the process goes on, changing with the different seasons, uh, the different times of the day, the different festivals going on, so it um, can be simple practices to much more elaborate practices, all with the aim of establishing a loving connection 
There's a poetic phrase that I like to quote in this context, pritama prita hi te pei. That is that the beloved is found precisely through love itself. And love, too, is one of those non-dual unitive forces in that love is an emotion as well as being a, a form of action. And in the case of divinity, divinity itself is the embodiment of love. But to go back to the action, for it's in the act of love, seva, loving service to some being, some entity, that we achieve a greater love of this. Uh, parents talk about it's, it's in changing a child's diapers and taking care of them. It's in those acts of love that, um, that the love with the child then deepens. And I think this is a practice that uses that basic nature uh, of our being to engage uh, in this practice that aims for establishing intimate relationship with God. So would you say a stone of a mountain is a de facto murti of Krishna? It is a murti of Krishna. Uh, um, it's typically, the term that is more common is swarup. And I like Swaru better, first because it's what people use to, to refer to that. Um, and it could be a distinction that a Morty, um, and I don't think this distinction holds, but let's say that a lot of Mortys, temple Mortys, have been crafted by human artisans and then have to undergo a ritual transformation to be an embodied form of divinity called the Purana Pratistha. Um, that's not the case with a stone from Mount Govardhan. It is called a swayambhu form, a, a, a self-manifest form of God or Krishna. And in that case, then, it doesn't have to undergo that. Um, but what I like the term swarup is that uh, swarup literally means own form. And it has an expedient double meaning in that it means it's God's own form. This isn't this is an essential form of God. It's not a symbol of God. And I could talk about why I think symbolic representation is definitely not the way to go of talking about this culture, but rather it is an embodied form of, of God that is an essential. So it's God's own form. That's the theological meaning of Swarup. But from the worshiper's perspective, it's one's own form of God. It's that form of God that God came to you particularly for, for the particular relationship, for developing and living out and celebrating the particular relationship the individual worshiper has with God in this individual form. And in that sense, then, it's your own form of divinity. So that's the kind of language that is used to describe the, the, the Swaru. But it is considered to be uh, as you said, Murti, an, an embodied form of Krishna. I like the distinction that you um, just talk about. Um, uh, while one can say that uh, the, the stone is treated uh, precisely the same way a Murti might be treated, a Murti Krishna or even a deity. Um, the fundamental difference is that uh, this stone needs no parapetitioner because uh, the divine prana already lives in this stone and swam. So that's, that's an important distinction, and, and that is the logic whereby 
it's perilous to think of this as symbolic. Right. Symbolic representation is a language that, and I talk about this very much in the book, I guess the other big theoretical issue that I take on this book is the concept of idolatry. And I would say that I, that the language of symbolic representation is still deeply influenced uh, and w- was constructed out of what I call the in- idolatry interpretive tradition. And um, so w- w- because the way stone worship has been regarded in the history of the comparative study of religion, Idolatry has been a predominant theme. So one of my chapters in the book is called The Tale of Two Mountains. It tries to lay out um, how the history of the development of the comparative study of religion came out of the discourse around idolatry. Uh, Primarily, I I trace it back to the 17th century, which itself is... um, Roger, are you still there? Oh, no. I lost you. Yes, I'm still here. Okay, you're still there. <laughs> All right. Somehow my computer... I'm, okay. So well, let me go back to what I was saying then, that the, sure. um, the 17th century follows, there's an obvious point, the 16th century, which is a time in Northern Europe uh, or in Europe of, of, of great warfare. Uh, but between um, what became known as the Protestants and the Catholics. And the central issue of the war was idolatry. And one of the best books I think I read for helping me understand the kind of beginning of the importance of the concept of idolatry in the period that we call modernity, which still which generated uh, a worldview that we still very much, I would say, are living in and yet trying to, to trying to get out of. And that is Carlos Iyer's book, War Against the Idols. And in there, Carlos Iyer, who is just a, a great historian of European religion, says that um, it was in the 16th century that Christianity was transformed from a religion of imminence, meaning an understanding of God being present, even in material form, to a religion of radical transcendence, where divinity is completely removed from uh, the realm of visible form. And uh, so that and, and lays out the conflict of the 16th century, which led to the destruction of many churches and various forms of artwork, etc., as well as the death of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people. The issue was all around idolatry. And so I became fascinated because in reading the 19th century, even early 20th century colonial literature on something like the worship of Grover on stones, the, the concept that is used to interpret that is idolatry. And I, I trace out the history of that tradition where, um, and, and I guess I'm, I want to be clear that I'm not condemning the concept of idolatry as a religious concept, that is fine. What I'm condemning is the idea that idolatry is a useful tool for fairly understanding all religious traditions. And that's precisely what happens in the 
development of the comparative study of religion. So that um, that it's it was John Calvin and others' notion of idolatry that that defined much of the discourse around idolatry uh, in the 16th and leading into the 17th century, which enhanced it to an understanding that idolatry is the worship of any visible form of divinity, which is totally denied, which means, uh, or, or any of the created world, so that anything that we might call nature worship, et cetera, et cetera, is considered to be idolatry. So you get this bifurcation of spirit and matter to a degree that really had not existed uh, before. That's what gets enhanced in the new understanding of idolatry. So that um, the, the language of of symbolic representation makes a distinction between the symbolized and the, the symbol itself, or um, the, the signified and the signifier. So that um, in, let's say, Reformed Christian, Christian church, the cross, the wooden cross on the wall, it would be a simple one probably in that context. Um, I think to understand that, symbolic le- representation is a very useful interpretive tool to use in that um, the that cross on the wall is representing Christ what Christians have been arguing over for two millennia right and any understanding a religious a religious approach or religious worship that confuses the wooden cross with Christ would be called idolatry so fair enough in that context but to then use that, as an interpretive lens to understand what is going on in a a religious tradition that is based in a non-dual understanding where God is both transcendent and imminent. That is that God is present fully, fully present in the realm that we call matter and yet also transcends that fully so that that matter doesn't somehow exhaust God. God is the infinite. But the question is, what is the relationship between finite form and the infinite? And so I would say, does the infinite include the finite? And if infinite includes the finite, which it must to be infinite, then um, then the then somehow infinite is not different from the finite, and so I think that the a better language would rather than symbolic representation to talk about the relationship between uh, a, a single Govardhan stone and Krishna, the kind of the infinite uh, supreme divinity that is non different from that is what is often called metonymic representation. And I think the best way to understand that is to look at the relationship between a handle on a cup and the cup. So that the handle is not exactly the same as the cup. We can talk about the handle and you'll know what I mean. So it designates something distinctive and seemingly separate from the cup. And yet it is part of the cup. So the handle is the particular stone, the murti, the swarup, that particular embodied form of divinity, which gives one a handle onto, for relationship, the cup, which in this case, the cup is infinite. Um, 
And I think that gets at a better understanding so that the um, that symbolic representation still is a language that divorces the physical entity from divinity. And again, in certain religious traditions, that makes sense. But to understand this religious tradition, that makes no sense. And I suppose that some of my interest in this is also that I think we're living in a time where we are slowly coming to understand that we have got the relationship between the human and the more than human really wrong. And I think that's coming back to bite us in a big time now uh, through many such things, but the environmental crisis is one that certainly comes to mind. There's uh, so much fascinating content there. Uh, I could just share some some thoughts on that. I agree with you uh, 100% that the language of idolatry is problematic when applied to Indian religions. Um, not only because of its pejorative, um, uh, not only because it might be offensive as a technical term itself, assuming it was a perfectly neutral term to use, as a technical term is problematic because the concept of idolatry is a function of, the, of living in the tent of Abraham, is what I call it in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, living in the tent of Abraham, living as part of a religious tradition that comes from uh, Genesis and Exodus, ultimately. Yeah. We as a culture, uh, our society, Western society, whether we are religious, um, uh, whether we are secularly minded, our culture is consciously and unconsciously still within the tent of Abraham in ways that we are only beginning to understand because of um, because of how that ideology maps humanity and relationship to both the cosmos and nature, right? What we find in Genesis and Exodus is, uh, or Genesis in particular, is a very, very powerful religious revolution, something very different and in opposition to what was happening in all of the known uh, pantheistic worlds. And so I think that what what you talk about in terms of, 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 of sort of the Protestant uh, position in the 16th and 17th century, in many ways, to my mind, it is the cream of a milk that was uh, produced from this very powerful worldview. Um, not to demonize a worldview, it's, it's um, like with any worldview, there are things you see clearly and there are things that are in your blind spot. Any vantage point will necessitate blind spots. Yeah. Right? But back to the, the idea of uh, the idea of idolatry is a function of a worldview wherein the divine is wholly other to humanity and wholly other to nature and that worldview is uh, exists nowhere else not in the ancient pagan religions not in uh, modern modern traditions outside of the tent of Abraham it is a powerful and radical vision of divinity that is wholly transcendent. And it's that precept is problematic. Uh, every now and then you have the tension of, well, then how do pilgrimages work? Okay, well, then how do relics work? 
okay, the, the idea of the sacred in the world, this, this is a deep problem, uh, given this transcendental uh, vision of divinity. Um, and just this morning, I was thinking more and more of doing a comparison of the cosmology we see uh, in the Hebrew Bible and the cosmology we see an example in the Devi Mahatmya, where you know one is dedicated to God, one is dedicated to goddess, and um, their authors were astute enough to 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 present um, cosmologies that bespeak sort of very different ways of being. Right, so in in the Devi Mahatmya, you'll see that the, the the supreme divinity comes out of other beings at, at every turn, is part and parcel of the pantheon of heaven, is part and parcel of the great Trimurti, is is uh, resides in all beings in their very biorhythms. Mm. It's a very very different um, approach to divinity. Um, but to the point of this conversation, I guess as much we can say there. Um, for this reason, uh, I emphatically agree that the language of idolatry makes no sense. You're asking the wrong question. When someone hears a story of someone worshipping stone, and the question is, well, what's up with this idolatry? If the stone were insentient, or if the stone is bereft of divinity, then idolatry makes sense. But the question you're asking is from the perspective of a worldview that is not commensurate with the worldview uh, whereby devotees engage the divine through um, material culture. Yeah. Well, I, right. I mean, I, I, would, I agree with so much of what you said. The only thing I think I would um, maybe tweak a bit, and that is that the, you're talking of an interpretation of both Genesis and Exodus as being singular, and I think if if I've learned um, something from just studying world religious traditions for multiple decades now in my life, it's that one of the things I love about scripture is that it's ambiguous and can give rise to such radically different interpretations. Um, and so that we, we find, even if within Christianity itself, we find great, great divergence great divergence on central issues such as nature of the world, desire, et cetera, et cetera. And yet they're all reading the same text. So that, that, and, and that I, I, to me, that's important because it keeps open the possibility that interpretations change, which actually factually they do that. We see that um, religious traditions are always changing, usually in response to some great historical challenge. And, so that I think the development of what is called eco-theology, say even within Christianity today, is uh, an example of how Christianity is going back and reading, or certain Christian theologians are going back and reading scriptures now through new eyes that are, are challenged in new ways, have new information, and coming up with something quite different. So I think of someone like Sally McVeigh, who wrote the book uh, called The Body of God, where she's really trying to bring in that imminent dimension that has been lost. But within the, the Hindu tradition, I mean, I think you're right, that we're looking at something that really stands off from other traditions. And yet today, what you're calling the Abrahamic tent, today has such a powerful presence in the world in terms of numbers and 
kind of political power. Um, so I think that, beyond, yeah, go ahead. Beyond the political power, um, Western culture yeah. is part and parcel. We're operating primarily yeah. within the old view and the Sunni values and ethos of that 30,000 foot view of Abraham. This, right. this is, I guess this is the bedrock of our culture in terms of how we view the world. We may, be, we may hail the Greeks, for example, but it's not the ancient Greek worldview that consciously or unconsciously informs uh, modern global culture. Yeah. And yet today there are cracks appearing in it. And I suppose I'm interested in those cracks and the way that, and, and maybe to bring it back to the study of other cultures, because the, the, the kind of the problem of presence in something like a stone is not, not a problem for every culture. And so it's, it's a specific culture. But I think that uh, in the colonial period, culture, other cultures were studied to control them. To me, I think that one of the great reasons to study other cultures today uh, is to, to learn something from them, to get a new perspective on uh, the, the issues that concern us for, for some reason or another. And, and that's why, uh, yeah, I mean, to take idolatry as just an assumed interpretive lens and assume that somehow it really explains something about these other cultures or the other practices of, of, of people, um, because in the colonial period, rocks were considered the very bottom of stuff on the planet, and certainly the very bottom of possible religious objects, and rock worshippers were the bottom of the bottom of the heap. So uh, part of this project is to take that bottom and lift it up, not to keep the, not to flip the hierarchical um, pyramid or something, but rather to do away with that. I think the playful approach to cross-cultural understanding takes place on an even playing field where those high positions of superiority are, are dissolve as some kind of illusion. So to, to, to take these ideas and, and begin to think about um, the implication of them for today is one of the great values of, of cross-cultural studies. So what would your advice be then to um, some budding or even seasoned scholar who studies other cultures, probably in terms of the listenership of this podcast, I would imagine mostly um, uh, Indian culture, Indian culture. Um, but what would your advice be uh, in terms of, you know, the straddling you mentioned earlier, in terms of, of engaging a culture uh, in a way where you're not only understanding that data or attempting to through your framework, but you uh, you can achieve this sort of intellectual uh, dual citizenship, right? You know, can you tell us more about that? How, how does one do that? What does that look like? Well, I think uh, we all have to, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, so much of my thinking is grounded, I guess to use the old term in sociology of knowledge, which recognizes that we don't live in reality with some capital R, but rather we live in socially constructed realities. And the degree to which we take that seriously, which I think we must, there's no place to stand for certain judgment of others. So I think first it, it's, it's acknowledging that. And then taking that in 
Um, how many people are really willing to accept the fact that their understanding of reality is not necessarily solidly true, but rather is the socially constructed sense of reality that they were born into being born into a particular family, place, and time. So it's that, but then it, it's also, I think it, it's that, that going back to that playful openness and you know, I think early sociologists have convinced me that that the uh, sense of reality that we're socialized into before we can even think about the nature of reality does have us uh, to a large degree throughout our life. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't open ourselves to other ways of being. So the straddling is accepting that you come from a certain cultural mode of being that's defined by your particular family, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and yet opening yourself to these other cultures. And my own fascination has been opening myself to looking at the ways human beings have interacted in significant ways with the more than human world. And to, to take that seriously, because I have to, if I, if I accept the f- fact of the socially constructed nature of my own reality, that means that another understanding of reality has to be approached with a, a sense of that it's equally valid. And I think it's, it's that. And if we make that sort of move, then we're, we're opening ourselves to not only a way of respecting others, I think that is more fruitful, but we're opening ourselves to a deeper understanding of what it means to be human. And, um, yeah, what it means to be human. What do you mean by the more than human world? I'm sorry? What do you mean by the more than human world? What are you referring to? Yeah, I like that phrase other than non-human. Because non-human just is so still defined by, and we, I think this is part of the language struggle. How do we refer to um, other beings, other entities? I, I like the term entity because it's used both for a human person as well as a non-human person, as well as what we call an inanimate object. So that's, it, it's all that. I mean, it's when I look out at the world and, and, and that's that's bigger than human, and that's why more has that sense of bigger rather than just other. Some people call it other than human. I like more than human, which I think came from David Abrams, at least in my mind initially. But wherever it came from, wherever it came from, I, I like that to refer then to something like mountain, river, trees, uh, animals, etc. So that's what I mean by the term. So, um, what what surprised you? Is there some anything that particularly surprised you by doing this research, or was it sort of a natural? Was it a way to sort of codify and and and, and demonstrate uh, your own suspicions based on through this research, or, or were there any curveballs uh, uh, in terms of what you learned? I've spent a lot of time uh, studying and living in the Bridge area, so so it wasn't there weren't radically new things. But I suppose, and I'm surprised that I was surprised by this, the discovery of the range of identities that Mount Gordon has, and I certainly was aware that it was considered to be an embodied form of Krishna, um, but the range goes much larger than that, and partially this is 
comes out of the notion that it's the worshiper who defines the form of God, do, dependent upon the emotional disposition of the worshiper. So for some, the most intimate uh, relationship might be as God as mother or God as father or God as lover or God as child. So there's, there's that. But I, but I suppose what I found um, both in texts as as well as in in ritual form as as well as embodied form the way stones are decorated in worship uh, is the radha identity of govardhan that i'd never heard before but it but as i when i first saw it i just thought it was a rare sort of thing and as i got into it i began to see um, the stones of govardhan identified as radha the uh, female component of Krishna, the goddess, his beloved, in that sense. I suppose that, that's a small feature, but but that was somewhat new to me, and I do write about that in in uh, the book. Well, it's it's definitely something that I found very interesting as well. Uh, may well be my own superimposition upon that, but it seems very reminiscent of uh, Sankhya philosophy. Where the material aspect of this property is feminine, and the yeah. masculine aspect okay. uh, is mas- uh, Sorry, the divine aspect, uh, this the spiritual, non-physical aspect yeah. is, is masculine. Right, and in these uh, kind of Vaishnavadanta traditions, of course, that difference is recognized and yet brought together. So the Purusha Prakriti, spirit matter difference is not an ultimate difference in any way. And uh, even in a text like Bhagavad Gita, Krishna then identifies Prakriti uh, with himself. And um, so we get, and I, it's, it's that, that, that shape shifting. That's why I say I don't, I, I'm surprised by my surprise because I think I've come to understand that, that God, Krishna, maybe specifically in this tradition, has a very much a shape-shifting quality, and that that is going to be in some sense um, in relationship then with the great diversity uh, of humanity and the great diversity of emotional dis- dispositions in humanity. Uh, so that again, the recognition of the one and the many, I suppose, the simultaneity of that, but that being played out in terms of personal relationships with the stones from the mountain, taking on uh, a variety of identifications. Fascinating stuff. So we've probably taken more than enough of your time for one day. Um, Before we close, why don't you tell us, uh, what are you working on now? Well, I'm wrapping. I I do have interest in environmental issues and the place of religion in that. And um, I think the biggest challenge of our times is climate change. So I have been pulled into a project that uh, was supported by loose funding and uh, came out of American University, and particularly the uh, Center for Latin American Studies there on climate change and religion globally, but particularly with a focus on the global South and um, focusing on specifically the challenge of the rapid deterioration of of glaciers and the flooding that's caused in the um, Indian Himalaya and the Peruvian Andes. And I was brought in to do a piece on the Indian Himalaya since I've spent 
quite a bit of time up there. And the other component is looking at Somal Island vulnerability in the face of climate change in the Caribbean and um, South Pacific. So I was pulled into that project and did some interesting travel. But my own piece of that is uh, uh, looking at um, the kind of changing nature of some of the forms of Hinduism in the Himalayas. And I was asked to edit a volume on the anthropological case studies that is called Understanding Climate Change Through Religious Life Worlds. So that will be coming out early next year from Indiana University Press. And as the editor of international writers, I've had my hands full with that. Um, so I, yeah, so I guess that's most immediately on my uh, table. But beyond that, I, I think I'm asking that question myself. Uh, I think I've brought a, well, that's plenty for now. Yeah, I think that's enough. We'll, we'll see. I'll be open to that. <laughs> I said I'll be playfully open to that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Once that's out, we'll have to return to the program so we can talk about some of the findings there. That should be fun. Um, so was there anything else about the book that you hope that we touch on in the interview? Um, no, again, I just want to thank you for this opportunity to talk about Loving Stones. It came out in the COVID lockdown. In fact, even it was literally locked down in a warehouse. and. Um, not sure how communication about new books is happening. And so I just appreciate opportunity uh, to be part of your series and hope that this book might be of interest to folks who listen to this podcast. You know, I have no doubt this book will be of interest to folks. Um, and, you know, I'm in this interesting space of having the, the, this, uh, this, this hobby of, of, of having the chance to speak to, to, smart people about really interesting projects um and this started off as more or less sort of a, a favor uh, a couple of years ago i thought i'd do it for a little while and, mm-hmm. and now it's uh the podcast is completely taken off i think we've quadrupled or quintupled numbers yeah. uh, just in these past few months because of covid and i i sort of instinctively uh, started really amping up the rate of interviews maybe two to three times as much per month I would initially do maybe one to two a month. Uh, it's possible while it's been probably seven, eight, nine a month. Um, I, I have joked that this is my contribution to the war effort. Mm. <laughs> you know, people are at home. I can't be on the front lines. Uh, this is what I can do to, to mm. help to create some interesting content. And also to counteract the fact that books are sitting uh, Lord knows where. Yeah. Right. Understandably so. Um, to have the book come out. April officially, maybe May. Um, and I haven't gotten the copies yet. I don't know if I'll get them this calendar year, right? Well, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. I, no, I, thought, I thought that, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Um, because, we'll see. I mean, but um, I think it's. No, it's, it really is a pleasure. It, it, it very much is a pleasure. I, I learned yeah. so much. It forces me to stay uh, fairly well read in areas that I wouldn't necessarily be, you know, um, researching or reading. And so it's, it really is a pleasure. It's it's always a pleasure to speak to scholars who who do great work, but are very cognizant of the implications of their work beyond the work in hand or beyond the subdiscipline or the discipline. It is my view that anybody who dedicates time and energy to a book project uh, or a grant application that 
there's always a much bigger issue there. But in my experience, we're not always very used to, trained to, or comfortable understanding how this work is important well beyond the niche that we're operating in. And in this work, it's very clear that to me anyhow that um, that you are you are tackling very big questions that relate to uh, comparative religion, the history of religion, in addition to providing very specific uh, insights about um, uh, sort of this religious niche of honoring this mountain as um, as embodiments of Krishna. So fascinating work. My pleasure. Uh, for those of you out there, uh, we've been speaking with Dr. David Hagerman, who is a professor of religious studies at Indiana University. We've been talking about his brand new 2020 OUP publication, Loving Stones, Making the Impossible Possible in the Worship of Mount Govardhan. Uh, until next time, uh, keep reading, uh, keep thinking, keep listening. And also, if there's anything in particular that you would like for me to cover, um, or any suggestions for the podcast, by all means, feel free to email me at raj at rajbalkrun.com. Uh, take care. Thank you very much.